Winston Churchill was invited by the headmaster at Harrow School on the outskirts of London to come back to his alma mater for an evening concert. Uh, 1941 was a terrible time in London, 1940 and 41. The city endured 71 bombings over a period of 267 days that had decimated its streets and buildings and terrified its people. Churchill went to Harrow thinking that uh, his presence would cheer students and faculty and the people of the community. When he was asked to speak, he did, but he only spoke for two or three minutes. Yet one line of that speech is still remembered today. Churchill told the students and their teachers at that evening concert, he said, surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to the convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. If in 1941, England had given in, what might the world look like today? Now I have a second question for you. If today you or I give in to temptation or despair, or to the promise of ease at the price of integrity, what will our lives look like tomorrow? One of the prized traits in the early church was perseverance. The ability to endure hardship without giving in. Jesus called his followers to it. Paul uses the word 16 times in his letters. James uses it. The Revelation features it. There is no success in the Christian life apart from perseverance. Let me repeat that line. There is no success in the Christian life apart from perseverance. But while the early church prized perseverance highly, <clears throat> that's not the case today. Our age prizes the entrepreneurial spirit more than it does fortitude. We celebrate success, not endurance. We believe in gain without pain, prosperity without adversity, and happiness without holiness. We value self-actualization, not character. We love creativity, but not constancy. Ours is a shortcut society. But there are no shortcuts in the Christian life. It takes time to produce godly men and women. It also takes adversity and endurance. You don't become godly by reading a self-help book or watching a half-hour video. Life is a crucible for producing saints. Earth is a saint-making machine, and it takes a lifetime for the work to be done. We'd like to think that God's people are exempt from suffering, or at least that they should be, but history refutes that claim. God forged his people in the furnaces in Egypt where they suffered abuse and mistreatment. He tested them for 40 years in the wilderness. They went through exile and persecution, and when God's own son came to earth, he was described as a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. 
We're told by the author of Hebrews that he learned obedience through suffering. Life calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Jesus told us in Luke's gospel that it would be by our endurance that we would gain our lives, where the word is souls. We don't get it all now. We aren't there yet. You only become yourself, only gain your soul through endurance. All things are yours, says the apostle, and goes on to list some of them, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, but only those who persevere understand what that means. If you give up when marriage gets hard, when money gets tight, when people get mean, when you're tired and sad and hurt, you'll miss out on what God has for you. And what he has for you is not a thing or an experience. It's a person. It's you. The you he's making you to be in the crucible of life. The reward isn't something extraneous, a mansion or something like that. The reward is getting the chance to be you the you you were always meant to be, the you that is a total joy to be, the you that is united with Christ himself. Brian Wilkerson ran the New York Marathon, and later he was telling a story, and this is what he said, and I'll just read it to you. He said, the first half of the race is a party. You're swept along by 28,000 runners, crowds lining the streets, people running in costumes. You're touring the ethnic neighborhoods of Brooklyn and Queens. You feel like you could run forever. At mile 13, you cross over into Manhattan and start heading north away from the finish line. Central Park's behind you, and you're going in the wrong direction. The crowds are thinner now. The party's over. At about mile 16 or 18, you hit the wall. You're absolutely miserable. Physically and psychologically, you're busted. All you want to do is stop running. I remember passing one of the first aid stations. There were runners lying on cots, pale and gaunt, with IVs dripping into their arms. And I thought to myself, those lucky dogs. (laughs) At that point, I began to despair. I imagined myself having to go home and tell everybody I didn't finish. Why did I ever sign up for this race? What made me think I could do this? He says, that's when it hit me. One way or another, I had to get to Central Park. That's where my ride was. I had no car. I had no money. I would have to get there on my own two feet, so I might as well keep running. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't think about the next six miles. Just think about the next step. And if you keep that up, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, the miles pass. And when you cross the finish line, it feels like glory. Even when you're in, as I suppose he was, 10,044th place. And it will feel like glory for the follower of Jesus who perseveres. It will be glory. The joy of being yourself. We can't even imagine it now. Most of the time, we don't even like ourselves. The joy of being the self that God intends you to be will be glorious beyond words. We'll forget all about comparing ourselves to anyone else. We'll be filled and overflowing with joy and gratitude at the thought of being who we are and where we are. 
How do you become that person that you will so much enjoy being? By perseverance. There is no other way. Perseverance is a major theme of the book of James. Or I should say, it's the bond that holds the major themes of the book of James together. The three major themes in James are all introduced in the first chapter. Go home today and read, James. You can read it in probably half an hour, maybe less. All three major themes are introduced in that first chapter, the first one being the believer's relationship to testing, testing that brings joy and produces blessedness. The second theme is wisdom, especially as it's revealed in a believer's speech. The third theme is the Christ follower's relationship to wealth or the lack thereof. But all three themes move to a summary in chapter 5. Verses 7 through 11 are the summary of the book, where the word patience is used twice and the word endurance or perseverance once. In verse 11, James concludes, We consider blessed those who have persevered. That idea is what holds the book of James together. That's the idea that's going to hold this sermon series together as well. Let's read our text. It's found in James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, literally he's double-souled man, unstable in all he does. After the traditional greeting in verse 1, James makes what is arguably the craziest statement in the Bible. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, that sounds nuts. James is not peddling pop Christianity here. This is not comfort Christianity. This is radical stuff. Try telling someone who's just lost a spouse or lost a limb or been diagnosed with a serious illness or going through marriage problems to count it pure joy. They'll think you're heartless, that you're crazy. But really, don't try telling that to anyone else. Tell it to yourself. It's not your business to tell them. Tell it to yourself. But understand what it means and why there's value in it. Otherwise, you'll never be able to do it. Remember, too, that James knew what he was talking about. He was speaking out of his own experience. He knew that this is possible. And if we can learn what he knew, it will change us. The Greek word the NIV translates as consider has two basic and interrelated meanings. You look at them in the lexicon, you'll find these two primary meanings. The first is to lead. In fact, the English word hegemony is simply a transliteration of this word. It just slides over from Greek into English. The second meaning is to think or to regard. James wants us to regard, that's this word's second meaning, regard our trials 
as an occasion for joy. That is, he wants us to be led, that's the first meaning, by that idea through our trials. Whenever we face such trials, and the Greek word literally means fall into, when we fall into these trials, the idea is that they take us by surprise, that they surround us before we know it. Whenever we face such trials, James wants us to consider it pure joy. Now, he doesn't say feel it pure joy. Feelings can't be commanded like that. Feelings follow thoughts. You never have a feeling without a thought. And so we must begin by considering it joy. The noun-translated trials could be and often is translated temptations. One can only decide between the two meanings by examining the context. And the reality is that temptations are trials. Trials of our trust in God. And trials are temptations. Temptations to turn from trust in God and trust in something or someone else, usually ourselves. The trial of a difficult marriage may be a temptation to unfaithfulness or to bitterness. The trial of chronic illness may be a temptation to self-pity or to envy. The trial of poverty may be a temptation to deceit. Every trial comes preloaded, to use computer jargon, with a host of possible temptations. And temptations become trials. Ongoing temptations try us. They wear us down. They crush our spirits. But mostly they try our faith. Temptations are trials. Trials are temptations. No wonder Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. That's the word that we have here. The adjective James uses to describe these trials that's rendered various in the NIV is a compound word that translates literally as many-colored. Trials come in a variety of shades and hues, if you will. Some are blue, full of sadness and pity. Some are red, full of the heat of emotion. Some are gray and carry people into despair. Now, there's a beautiful parallel to these many-colored trials that we read about in Peter's first letter, where he uses the very same adjective to a very different purpose. There we read, each one, meaning each of you believers, should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Let me reword that final phrase. Faithfully administering God's many-colored grace. There's that word. For every color of trial, there's a corresponding color of grace. And notice that we have a part to play in this. We have a a responsibility to help each other by administering our particular color of grace to brothers and sisters in Christ. The grace I dispense might be heaven-made to match someone in your trial. The grace God has given you to dispense might perfectly serve a person like me in my trial. This is God's wisdom who gave us each other as well as everything we need for life and godliness. And the fact is, in that everything is one another. We need each other. So we're to consider the trial that we've fallen into right now, pure joy. So think of your trial that you're facing right now. The sickness, the relationship trouble, the financial crunch, the housing problem, the threats of some enemy. Now, does that seem unrealistic to you? I mean, I hate this sickness. How am I to consider it pure joy? The financial crush has destroyed my future. Am I to consider that a joy? 
And if I am, how on earth am I supposed to do it? You consider it pure joy because the testing itself does something to you. It changes you. If you will only persevere, it will bring you closer than you have yet been to being the glorious person God intends you to be. And that is a great joy. And not just in heaven, but on earth. Now, don't miss this. It is impossible to consider the trial you are now in to be pure joy unless you know that God intends to use that trial to produce a great good in your life. In other words, the consider of verse 2, consider it pure joy, is dependent upon the know of verse 3. Unless you know what James knew and are led by that thought, you will not be able to consider your trial pure joy. In fact, unless you know what James knew, it would be madness to consider your trial pure joy. But what if you knew something about that trial that other people didn't know? What if you had inside information? There's a great story that came out of Minnesota this week. There's a young Dairy Queen employee who's working at the counter. Some of you probably heard this story. He saw a customer filch a $20 bill that belonged to a blind man. He had dropped it, and a customer picked it up. When she came to the counter to order, he refused to take her order until she gave that $20 bill back. Well, she stormed out of the store and took the money with her. So he took a $20 bill out of his own pocket, and he gave it to his blind customer, and I think he dropped this. So it's a great story. It's good to hear about this principled young man. But I want to jump off that and imagine, and that's all this is, just imagine, a situation in which you would consider it pure joy for someone to take a $20 bill from a blind person. Would that be possible? Imagine that the person taking the $20 had realized something no one else knew, that the man was only pretending to be blind so that he could steal from people without suspicion. The person taking money from the blind person would really just be returning it to its rightful owner. If you knew what was happening, you had inside information, you would consider it pure joy. But if you didn't, you would consider it an outrage. It would all depend on what you knew. That's the case when it comes to your trials. You will be outraged by your trials without the inside information of what God is doing. Considering trials pure joy is crazy unless you know the truth about what's happening in a trial, which is what James lets us in on in this text. We can consider a trial joy because we know that as the trial tests our faith, it develops all important perseverance. Now, we're going to come back to tests our faith in a few moments. But first we need to ask another question. Perseverance in what? And we need to ask because people can persevere in the wrong things. They can keep hitting their heads against a wall and call it perseverance. They can stay in a situation God's called them to leave and call it perseverance. They can refuse to back down from a stand that they never should have taken in the first place and call it perseverance. So when James calls us to persevere, what are we to persevere in? He's not saying that we should persevere in any and every situation in any and ever course of action. He wants us to persevere in trusting God. When we trust God in a situation, 
we will do things his way no matter how hard it is. We won't take shortcuts. We won't ignore God's word or abandon his ways in order to make things easier for ourselves. When we persevere in trusting God through a trial, remarkable things happen within us. But only if we persevere in trusting him. These remarkable things don't happen just because we persevere, but because we persevere in trusting God. When we do that, we become mature and complete. Where the word mature here is the word teleos in Greek. It means the end. We reach the end for which we're made. Trials help bring us to become the people God always intended us to be. And where the word complete means that we aren't missing any important components. James not talking about, oh, this trial is going to develop a certain virtue in you, like patience or kindness or generosity. He's talking about putting all those virtues together as a package. He's talking about becoming the person God had in mind when he designed you. And there's no way to become that person. It is to become yourself, your true self that does not involve perseverance in trusting God through trials. The person who perseveres in trusting God through trials does not, this is verse 4, lack anything that he or she needs to be everything God calls him or her to be. That includes the wisdom that verse 5 speaks about, the wisdom to endure trials in good and God-honoring ways. The person who perseveres in trusting God, for example, in a difficult marriage can ask God for wisdom about how to proceed in that marriage and expect to get an answer. The person who perseveres in trusting God through a debilitating illness can ask God for wisdom about how to serve and honor him and find joy and purpose in the midst of that illness. The person who perseveres in trusting God through a relational conflict can ask God for wisdom about how to approach the person with whom he or she's having conflict, and God will give it. You see the point? The wisdom in verse 5 is for the person who endures, verses 2 through 4. Now, I lay such stress on this point because we often miss it. We start out on some quest or project and believe that we have to persevere because that's what the Bible tells us to do. But perseverance in a particular course of action may have the opposite effect that God intends. It may make you stubborn and bitter, whereas perseverance and trusting God will make you better. Now, let's return, as I said we would, to the phrase, the testing of your faith. Notice what it is and what it is not. It is your faith that is tested, not your intelligence, not your moral superiority, not your integrity, not your Bible knowledge, but your faith. The test, whether it's a trial of poverty or the temptation to adultery, whether it's the ordeal of illness or the impulse to lie, the test is a test of your faith in God. Will you trust him and do things his way? If you will, perseverance will develop you. It will mold you and make you the person that you long to be. Realize that the test you are now enduring, and many of you are probably enduring tests right now, it is a test of your faith. 
not of your strength. The difficult marriage is a test of your faith. Will you trust God and dare to relate to your spouse as God's instructed? A lot of people say, I couldn't do that. I can't do that. And they won't trust God. The illness you're going through is a test of your faith. Will you trust God to bring good out of it? Will you obey him without excuse and serve him in the midst of your pain? If you will, God will do remarkable things in you. The financial trial your family's going through is a test of your faith, not of your worth or your smarts or your success. Trust God. Use what money you have as he's instructed you and see what he does. In every test, an easier way always becomes apparent. It's like multiple choice. I can choose God's way or I can choose another way. It's easier to blow up and try to control others through anger than it is to do it God's way. It's easier to throw yourself into your work or into fantasy than to approach your spouse with honesty. It's easier to use deceit than to confess your sin and your failure. There's always a way that seems easier than trusting God, a fork in the road that you can follow that doesn't require you to trust and obey. But remember what's being tested here. It's not your ability to generate a certain outcome. It's not your finesse in managing a situation. What's being tested is your faith in God. Pass that test and it will open new doors to you. Opportunities you have not imagined will present themselves. Pass that test and you'll find it easier to pass the next test and the one after that and the one after that. Persevere in trusting God and you will be on your way to becoming the glorious person God intends you to be. That will not happen if you take the shortcut. The shortcut may help you avoid what you're trying to avoid, but it won't lead you where you want to go. So when it comes to trusting God in the test that you are even right now facing, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. Or put another way, never give in. Never give in, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in your trust in God. Now let's pray. God, we say those words, but when we leave this place, we will be assailed by trials and temptations. Always the temptation to choose another way besides yours to trust in someone or something else beside you. I pray that you will make us sensitive to the fact that that temptation is a temptation or a trial of our faith. Lord, we don't ask to make us smarter or stronger. We ask you to uphold us and help us to persevere in faith, in trusting you. And Lord, we look forward to the day when, when we will glory in your faithfulness.
in response. Do this, we pray, in the name of our Master and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.